again, this is Tori Kensington talking, and this is the Optimistic Almanac for Wednesday, September 13th, 2017. It's the anniversary of one of the most optimistic stories we've ever shared, the survival of Phineas Gage and his terrible industrial accident in 1848. Little is known about his upbringing and education beyond the fact that he was literate. Town doctor John Martin Harlow described Gage as a perfectly healthy, strong, and active young man, 25 years of age, of a nervobilious temperament, 5 foot 6 in height, average weight of 150 pounds, possessing an iron will as well as an iron frame, muscular skeletal system unusually well developed, having scarcely a day's illness from his childhood to the date of his injury. In the pseudoscience of phrenology, which was then just ending its vogue, a nervobilious temperament denoted an unusual combination of excitability and active mental powers, with energy and strength of mind and body, making possible the endurance of great mental and physical labor. On the 13th of September, 1848, Gage was directing a work gang blasting rock while preparing the roadbed for the Rutland and Burlington Railroad, south of the town of Cavendish, Vermont. Setting a blast entailed boring a hole deep into the outcropping of rock, adding blasting powder and a fuse, and then using a tamping iron to pack or tamp sand, clay, or other inert material in the hole above the powder. As Gage was doing this around 4.30 in the afternoon, his attention was attracted by his men working behind him. Looking over his right shoulder and, and inadvertently bringing his head into the line of the blast hole, Gage opened his mouth to speak, and in that same instant, the tamping iron sparked against the rock, possibly because the sand had been omitted, and the powder exploded. Rocketed from the hole, the tamping iron, an inch and a quarter in diameter and three feet and seven inches long and weighing 13 pounds, entered the left side of Gage's face in an upward direction, just forward of the angle of the lower jaw, continuing upward and out of the upper jaw and possibly fracturing the cheekbone. It passed behind the left eye, through the left side of the brain and out of the top of the skull of the frontal bone. Despite 19th century references to Gage as the American crowbar case, his tamping iron did not have a bander clause sometimes associated with the term crowbar. Rather, it was simply a pointed cylinder, something like a javelin, round and fairly smooth. The iron is unlike any other and was made by a neighboring blacksmith to please the fancy of its owner. The tamping iron landed point first some 80 feet away, smeared with brains and blood. Gage was thrown onto his back and gave some brief convulsions of the arms and legs, but spoke within a few minutes, walked with little assistance, sat upright in the ox cart for the three-quarter of a mile ride back to the lodging in town. About 30 minutes after the accident, physician Edward Williams, finding Gage sitting in a chair outside of the hotel, was greeted with one of the greatest understatements of medical history. When I drove up, he said, Doctor, here is some business for you. I noticed first the wound upon his head before I alighted from my carriage, the pulsations of the brains being very distinct. The top of the head appeared somewhat like an inverted funnel, as if some wedge-shaped body had passed from below upward. Mr. Gage, during the time I examined this wound, was relating the manner in which he was injured to the bystanders. 
I did not believe Mr. Gage's statement at the time, but thought he was deceived. Mr. Gage persisted in saying that the bar went through his head. Mr. Gage got up and vomited. The effort of the vomiting pressed out about a half a teacup of the brain, which fell upon the floor. Gage's family doctor, Dr. Harlow, took charge of the case around 6 p.m. He writes, You will excuse me for remarking here that the picture presented was, to one accustomed to military surgery, truly terrific, but the patient bore his sufferings with the most heroic firmness. He recognized me at once and said he hoped he was not much hurt. He seemed to be perfectly conscious, but was getting exhausted from the hemorrhage. His person and on the bed at which he laid were generally one of gore and blood. Despite his own optimism, Gage's convalescence was long, difficult, and uneven. Though recognizing his mother and uncle summoned the morning after the accident, on the second day he lost control of his mind and became decidedly delirious. By the fourth day he was again rational and knew his friends. And after a week's further improvement, his doctor entertained for the first time that it thought it was possible for Gage to recover. This improvement, however, was of short duration. Beginning 12 days after the accident, Gage was semi-comatose, seldom speaking unless spoken to, and then only answering in monosyllables. On the 13th day, the Dr. Harlow noted, failing strength, coma deepened. The globe of the left eye became more protuberant with fungus, deteriorated, infected tissue, pushing out rapidly from the internal canthus, from the wound in the brain, coming out of the top of the head. By the 14th day, the exhalations of the mouth and head are horribly fetid comatose, but will answer in monosyllables if aroused, will not take nourishment unless strongly urged. The friends and attendants are in hourly expectancy of his death and have his coffin and clothes in readiness. Galvanized, Dr. Harlow cut off the fungi which were sprouting out of the top of the brain and filling the opening and made free application of caustic silver nitrate with them. With a scalpel, I laid open the frontalis muscle from the exit wound at the top of the nose, and immediately there was discharged eight ounces of ill-conditioned pus with blood excessively fetid. Gage was lucky to encounter Dr. Harlow when he did. Few doctors in 1848 would have had the experience with cerebral abscess with which Harlow possibly saved Gage's life. On the 24th day, Gage succeeded in raising himself up and took one step to his chair. A month later, he was walking up and down stairs and about the house and into the piazza. And while Harlow was absent for a week, Gage was in the street every day except Sunday, his desire to return to his family in New Hampshire being uncontrollable by his friends. Harlow's prognosis at this point was that Gage appears to be in every way recovering. In November 1849, Dr. Henry Jacob Bigelow, the professor of surgery at Harvard Medical School, brought Gage to Boston for several weeks, and after satisfying himself that the tamping iron had actually passed through Gage's head, presented him to a meeting of the Boston Society for Medical Improvement and to a medical school class. This may have been one of the earliest cases of a patient entering a hospital primarily to further medical research rather than for treatment. Unable to return to his railroad work, Gage was for a time a kind of living museum exhibit at Barnum's American Museum in New York City. Advertisements have also been found for Gage's public appearances, which he may have arranged and promoted himself in New Hampshire and Vermont, supporting Harlow's statement that Gage made public appearances in, quote, most of the larger New England towns. 
Years later, Bigelow wrote that Gage had been a shrewd and intelligent man and quite disposed to do anything of that sort to turn an Ines Penny. For about 18 months, he worked as the owner of a stable and coat service in Hanover, New Hampshire. Gage displayed significant changes in behavior after his injury, but the nature, extent, and duration of these changes have been difficult to establish. Only a handful of sources give direct information on what Gage was like either before or after the accident. The mental changes described after his death were much more dramatic than anything that was reported while he was alive, and a few sources are explicit about the period of Gage's life to each, whether their various description of him, which will vary widely in their implied level of fundamental impairment is meant to apply. Gage's stagecoach work, a highly structured environment in which clear sequences of tasks requiring foresight and planning arose daily, resembles the rehabilitation regimens first developed by Soviet neuropsychologist Alexander Luria for the reestablishment of self-regulation in World War II soldiers suffering frontal lobe injuries. About a year after the accident, Gage had given his tamping iron to the Harvard Medical School's Warren Anatomical Museum. The tamping iron bears the following inscription commissioned by Bigelow in conjunction with the iron's deposit at the museum. This is the bar that was shot through the head of Mr. Phineas P. Gage at Cavendish, Vermont, September 13, 1848. He fully recovered from the injury and deposited this bar in the Museum of the Medical College at Harvard University. A neurological basis for such recoveries may be found in emerging evidence that, quote, damaged neural tracts may reestablish their original connections or build alternative pathways as the brain recovers from injury. Macmillan adds that if Gage made such a recovery, if he eventually figured out how to live despite his injury, then it, quote, would add to the current evidence that rehabilitation can be effective even in difficult and long-standing cases. And if Gage could achieve such improvement without medical supervision, what are the limits for those in formal rehabilitation programs? As author Sam Keen put it, even if Phineas Gage bounced back, that's a powerful message of hope. Here's a quote by Mark Twain. The greatest of all inventors is the accident. The Optimistic Almanac is made possible each weekday morning by NPC, the national podcasting company, a 501c3 nonprofit, and is funded by our listeners. Thank you. Research for today's show is by Lexi Caligari. Keep the faith, keep in love, and keep in touch. <laughs>